21st century, global news is bigger, faster, more complicated, and frankly a whole lot scarier than ever. It's hard to know which stories to pay attention to, or how to make sense of it all. Don't worry too much though, because we got you covered. We're International Relations PhDs, and we're here to deliver a lighthearted dose of context and analysis to your podcast app, week after week. We're decoding global politics, so you don't have to. We are... The Elucidators. Hello, and welcome to another episode of The Elucidators. I am your host, Steve Pally. With me, as always, is my co-host, Sumi Chatterjee. How are you doing, Sumi? Uh, I am not bad. How are you? I'm doing all right. Uh, fires all around, not little ones here in Southern California, but... Um, High and dry and safe and sound so far. So no complaints there. We're coming at you uh, Wednesday evening, October 30th. And what are we talking about this week, Sumi? Well, uh, the big event in international relations and in international politics was the death, the uh, the targeted assassination, the murder of Abu, al- Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi, the head of ISIS, the Islamic State in Syria. That's right. Uh, and the Levant, right? Yeah. Lots of names here. ISIL, Islamic State, and Levant, as we talked about during our previous Syria episode, the Levant is just sort of, it's a broader geographic description of sort of the Eastern Mediterranean, including parts of Syria and what is now Iraq. Also in Arabic, Daesh. Uh, you heard previous President Barack Obama almost exclusively refer to ISIS as ISIL or Daesh, which was bizarrely a point that current President Trump thought he should tease President Obama about. But that's neither here. Well, no, it is here, but it's not very important. <laughs> it is here, but it's not yeah. there. Um, yeah. So this dude, al-Baghdadi, was the caliph uh, or sort of high spiritual leader. Right. So real quick. Real quick, a caliph is the chief Muslim leader as and regarded as a direct successor to the prophet Muhammad, the founder of Islam, of, of the Muslim religion. And he drew on all of those sort of religious tropes and historical tropes to turn himself into something more than human, uh, to, to turn himself into a divinely guided leader of men. Um, but when we're talking about al-Baghdadi, uh, he was actually just a guy, right? So we're going to, in a new segment <laughs> we're trying out this week, uh, we're going to basically give you the rundown uh, in three to five minutes of who this guy was, uh, kind of the state of play. Um, we're calling it Previously On. Previously On. So... Interesting story, Steve. His name is not Abu Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi. What is... You don't say. No. Uh, it was uh, Ibrahim Awad Ibrahim al-Bedri, which just does not flow off the tongue anywhere near as well. Uh, he was born in 1971. He died, obviously very recently, at age 48, making him, what, an, an Arab Gen Xer, I guess? Uh, the guy was not old uh, at only 48, but the pictures of him... Uh, make him look like if you saw him on the streets and someone was like, oh, that dude's 48, you'd be like, oof, he lives hard. Uh, yeah. He is also an academic, this gentleman. 
not a yes. not a gentleman at all. Had degrees from the University of Baghdad, as well excuse me, as well as a doctorate from the Saddam, as in Saddam Hussein University for Islamic Studies. That university has a new name now because Iraq is trying to move past its Saddam past, but mm-hmm. he is, by all accounts, an academic. Uh, but not the kind of one that you'd be like, oh yeah, I should go to him to ask about a balanced view of Islam, even though he has a doctorate in Islamic studies. How does this fella go from nerd and doctor and uh, PhD in Islamic studies from Saddam Hussein's corrupt university to becoming one of the most important co- consequential terrorists in modern history? Right. Great question. So to whatever extent you can look at sort of the modern Islamic terrorist movement as a large corporation, um, he basically started in the mailroom and worked his way up uh, all the way to the executive suite. And then started a spinoff. He sure did. Uh, Yeah, no, a a subsidiary corporation. (laughs) Uh, It took about 10 years, um, starting in 2004. So this is after we have invaded Iraq the second time and toppled Saddam Hussein. Uh, And we've jailed a bunch of people we think are Islamic terrorists or terrorist sympathizers or insurgents or all three. Um, So at this point, he's kind of a nobody, Uh, obviously a religious scholar, uh, a pretty quiet guy by all accounts. Uh, We stick him in a sort of prison camp called Camp Bukka um, outside of Baghdad uh, with a bunch of other prisoners. Uh, And pretty soon he takes over the tent that he's uh, sort of interned in with uh, several dozen other prisoners. And he becomes the emir of that tent or the leader. He eventually is released from this camp um, after less than a year. And he goes to work for a number of different terrorist organizations uh, that are sort of the predecessors to what ends up being ISIS. Um, One of these is Al-Qaeda in Iraq. While he's the leader of of that organization, he starts orchestrating mass terror bombings uh, in Iraq um, and sort of showing off flair not only for religious oratory and, um, I guess, spiritual zeal, but also planning mass terrorist attacks. Um, So one could say that uh, he was (laughs) multi-talented, at least in that respect. All right. So this guy goes to school. He's he is a a particular kind of Islamic scholar. He goes. He gets involved with terrorist networks, and he proves himself to both be brutal as well as a talented spokesperson. That's right. He's in other words, he's an effective leader, <laughs> and and good at organizing violence. Yeah. Uh, basically. Yeah. Um. So. Uh. Eventually, uh, he has enough success to announce the creation in 2013 of the Islamic State of Iraq and the Levant, uh, or ISIL or ISIS, which we've already talked about. And then um, at what probably is his professional peak. Without question, without question, the the peak. Yeah, it's kind of all downhill from here. Uh, In June 2014, uh, he announces the establishment of a worldwide caliphate. Uh, from the sort of balcony of the Grand Mosque in Iraq's second city, Mosul, uh, which is a city of- Second biggest. Yeah, second city. So it's, you know, it's like the Iraqi equivalent of Los Angeles or something. And 
his army. I'm wildly uncomfortable with that comparison. Yeah, but, go but, ahead. but I just made it. Um, <laughs> okay, <laughs> Chicago, second city, fine. <laughs> but um, it, all this to say, uh, ISIS has basically done incredibly well in a very short period of time, and it has managed to take over uh, Iraq's second largest city and push into parts of Syria as well. Um, and so um, he is riding high, and he announces the formation of the caliphate. What does that mean, Sumi? Right. Uh, in international relations terms, what this means is that Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi in 2014, eight years after splitting from al-Qaeda, has established an actual state, a theocratic state, a theocratic state meaning a state whose governance is tied directly to religious doctrine. He has established a functioning theocratic state in a giant power vacuum in between Syria and Iraq. In Iraq, which is going still going through its civil war, Syria, which is going through its civil war, emerging out of the Arab Spring, this caliphate is a functioning state that is working in crazy ways. They have they're collecting taxes. They have traffic cops that write you tickets for parking in the wrong place. This is a fully functioning system. Now you say, okay, wow, that's very impressive. They set the state up out of nothing. Well, part of the way they were able to do this is by also keeping a large <laughs> I'm sorry, I can't I can't help but laugh. Many of the the citizens of this state are basically hostages. They cannot leave and they don't have any rights. Yeah, no, they're entirely hostages and they're held there basically by a regime of terror uh, featuring re- religious police, uh, public executions and maimings. Uh, the whole nine yards when it comes to Islamic fundamentalism. But you're right. Like, they're actually printing money, you know? Uh, they have control oh, yeah. of a mint. Um, they are selling oil <laughs> on the international black market. Um, they're taxing the people that live there, something like 12 to 13 million people, who most of whom don't want to be there, uh, but don't have a choice. Right. To give, you, to give you a sense of what kind of big impact 2013, 2014, ISIS was making. I remember teaching, uh, it was TAing US foreign policy classes and other international relations classes. And over several quarters, I would ask the following question to students. I would say, what era, when you, you know, we talk about like, oh, the Vietnam era or the, you know, the early Cold War, or the World War II era, what era do you think we're currently living in? And no one would say the global war on terror in 2013, 2014. No one would say the post 9-11 era. What they would all say, all of my students would say, oh, we're living through the era of ISIS. Ah, that's crazy. Yeah, the Islamic state. Yeah. It was a big deal. It was such a big deal that yeah. this guy drew something like, Anywhere estimates vary, but anywhere from forty to sixty thousand foreign fighters from over a hundred countries. Osama bin Laden is killed in May of twenty eleven. Right. Uh, ISIS becomes the most note notable noteworthy terrorist organization in the world in 2013-2014. And the problem, <clears throat> pardon me, the problem with being top dog in the terrorist world is now all of the wealthiest, most militarily capable countries in the world, the countries with the best intelligence gathering organizations, the ones that can run spies and do espionage and can track you from 60,000 feet, they all have eyes on you. There is not a country in the world that's like, 
yeah, ICE is all right. At least Al Qaeda had Afghanistan and the Taliban to say like, okay, we don't necessarily agree with everything, but we can give you safe haven. There isn't even a, a Pakistan who's like, well, we don't govern all our spaces, so you can have some of it. There's nobody, no state whatsoever is on ISIS's side. Not the Iranians, not the Iraqis, not the Syrians, not the Russians, not the Turks, not the Americans. Nobody in the EU is on board with ISIS. Yeah, totally. Everybody hates these guys. They're really super unpopular <laughs> everywhere they go. Uh, they have enemies on all sides, literally. Um, and you know what they say, you come at the king, you best not miss, right? Uh, it turns out we didn't miss. Um, so we've kind of summed up uh, the <laughs> al-Baghdadi's, uh, what, what got him to his end, right? How did the end come about? Um, and, and what exactly happened? Uh, I mean, we, we've been kind of hearing about it on the news and, and even watching video, right? How did we get this guy? So the the very short version of this is similarly to the way that we got bin Laden in Pakistan uh, eight years ago, eight and a half years ago, is that through intelligence gathering, you infiltrate the close circle of folks that are taking care of him. And by infiltrating that circle, you are then able to find evidence, which can then confirm the identity of the target, Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi, at which point the U.S. then concocted a special forces raid, which involved, uh, I'd say before the raid, they also get, gathered enough information to have a solid blueprint of what this uh, this guy's compound looked like, how many people were going to be there, who was there. And then they did a special forces raid that involved uh, an explosion to blow down an exterior wall and then going into the compound, demanding an Arabic the surrender. This, of course, was not met. They then found several women, lots of children. They tried their best to protect the children. I believe that they took 11 children uh, out of there with them. Uh, Baghdadi ends up getting chased down a hall, famously now by a dog, uh, at, at which point Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi does the highly discouraged, sacrilegious thing. Remember, this is a caliphate, self, uh, self-anointed self caliph who says he's a successor to Muhammad. He has been rumored to sleep with a suicide vest for years. He blows himself up. He commits suicide, which is forbidden by Islamic law. His head then explodes. He decapitates himself. And I'll let you take it from the head flying off, Steve. Yeah. So um, we've become so good. The United States has become so good and so specialized at hunting these guys down and killing them that we now have a special procedure, apparently, for identifying uh, these these guys once they're dead, right? So his head pops off of his body like a freaking Pez dispenser, basically, uh, because that's what suicide vests do, or so I've been led to believe. Um, and they take a picture of his face with what amounts to a special smart smartphone and it searches a database and runs some algorithm that provides like an instant match to verify that this was in fact Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi, the caliph of the Islamic State, and he is in fact dead. He blew himself up with two of his kids. Um, and I think that's really all you need to know about what kind of human being this guy was. I think we should really all celebrate his death. 
Um, it's, well, it's I, very I'm good. sorry, Steve. I, I got to add on to what a bad dude this guy is. There's a fantastic piece of reporting we uh, tweeted out about earlier this week done by the New York Times, in which a New York Times reporter interviewed lots of people who had actually known Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi, mm. including several Yazidi women. Oh, yeah. It's a re- religious minority in the Levant who were raped by Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi repeatedly. His former uh, – anyway, yeah. not a good guy by – almost any measure except his own yeah <laughs> except his own and and those of uh his his uh his followers um which weren't that many but enough to really wreak havoc in the middle east over a period of several years all right so uh we've been to where Baghdadi and isis was uh, and we've talked about what happened to him uh this past week uh after this break let's talk about uh where we see this going next Hello, valued listeners. If you like what you're hearing on The Elucidators, please do us a solid and tell everyone you know about the podcast. If you really love us, please also feel free to rate us five stars on your podcast store, be it iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, or whatever, and write us a glowing review, because we rely on your positive feedback and word of mouth to grow and improve. And if you have comments or questions, you can email us at allonewordtheelucidators at gmail.com or tweet us at the underscore elucidators. We may even answer your question on the show. Okay, and we're back. And for our last segment on Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi, let's talk about the significance of this guy's death, right? Uh, He got basically hunted down and killed um, by the United States uh, after his courier, who was serving as his only link to the outside world, apparently dropped a dime on him. Uh, and garnered $25 million of reward money. Um, He is dead. Uh, The Islamic State has basically been deprived of its territory. It still exists as an organization, right? Um, But the caliph is dead. Um, Do we think that the organization is ever going to go back to where it was in terms of controlling so much territory? So uh, I have a couple points to make on this question. Do I think they're ever going to regain the glory that they once had? No, I don't. I don't think that the idea of having a a proper functioning state as they as uh, they came close to having uh, about four, five, six years ago, I don't think that's possible. I think the dynamics in the in the region have changed. Uh, the Kurds are former allies. We're very right. good at, at, put, at putting them down. You can go back to the episode entitled Kurd Stomped for uh, uh, rough feelings about that U.S. Episode policy. nine. Yeah. Uh, similarly, the rest of the region and those previous states, uh, those previous countries that I mentioned have gotten way that don't like ISIS have gotten way better at counterterrorism measures. So no, I don't think so. Uh, in the same way as you pointed out that ISIS franchised off of Al Qaeda and then rebranded itself, they have uh, their ISIS organizations. They have, sorry, they have offshoots in different parts of the world, but it's unclear, at least from the public sourcing that we have. Uh, how much they were coordinating and how much that coordination was dependent upon Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi. Right. Uh, as we know in the Western world, so we'll say Western Europe and North America, that ISIS has maintained its uh, its notoriety, its salience in, uh, in 
politics by having these sort of they call them lone wolf attacks where someone who is someone is somewhat radicalized into the isis theology to the isis worldview and then commits an attack so this is the pulse nightclub yeah so that's an interesting point and and one of the i think most important aspects of the lone wolf attack is like yeah these guys are basically quote-unquote self-radicalized on the internet uh, from ISIS propaganda, right? They have like a shiny magazine, like a webzine, basically they put out once a month, something like that. They have all of these forums on, you know, various internet servers and so on. So these guys can go on, find materials, get all fired up, uh, decide they want to do a terrorist massacre. Um, and then critically, um, the right way of doing this, according to al-Baghdadi and the Islamic State while he was alive, was to pledge allegiance to the caliphate and al-Baghdadi personally uh, when committing these acts, right? right. So, so he was actually orchestrating a cult of personality. And that could be very effective as long as that personality is alive. Um, right. Now that he's dead, that might put a dent in ISIS's ability to kind of reach out and inspire people the same way. Right. So, Steve, just to be quick uh, about this one thing, when you said previously that the caliph, the the heir to Muhammad, uh, his courier dropped a dime on him, what does that mean and how did that happen? <laughs> okay. Yeah, this is kind of another interesting detail. Um, so in order to get this reward money, this guy who was, I guess, Baghdadi's trusted confidant who ended up betraying him, uh, in order to get the reward money, the guy had to prove that he actually had the goods on Baghdadi. So what did he do? He had to prove that this guy was the guy. Uh, he needed DNA. And he found that DNA in Sorry. an interesting place. Yeah, go right ahead, Sumi. This is uh, this is embarrassing. So this courier jacked a pair of Abu, Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi's underwear and then passed it along to the Americans for DNA confirmation. That's right. Specialized underwear analysis. And we, you know, before we started recording, we made a bunch of jokes about this that we're not going to repeat at this time. Nah, nuts to that. I got some jokes. So let me make sure I understand this case. Steve. <laughs> so you were the self-appointed successor to Muhammad and have declared yourself the leader of a religion of almost a billion and a half people. And you were undone by a stolen pair of underwear? Yeah, this man. Is, it, this is going to hurt your cult of personality. You know how they say, like, for want of a nail, the horse was lost or the kingdom was lost? I forget yeah. exactly what. Like yeah. this is the the 2019 equivalent of that. You know, keep your eyes on the stars, but your hands on your undies. That's what I said. Right. Furthermore, you are this guy who is, again, you're now the spiritual leader of Islam. And whoever, who is supposed to be watching your catalog of drawers? Who's on underwear duty? Shouldn't you as a successor to God be, you know, be dealing with the top brass who keeps your underwear in order. I'm just know, saying. Man. Yeah, I'm just like saying. maybe you're a lot more organized than I am. But just thinking about my own situation, I would I would have trouble identifying 
uh, a missing pair of underwear, unless, of course, they were my favorite pair, in which case I would notice pretty much immediately. Fine. That's fine, Steve. But you're a regular guy. This guy has declared himself to be the leader of a religion of a billion plus people. You'd think that he would be, as he is protected and directed by God, that he would have the top (laughs) brass around him who wouldn't let his (laughs) underwear get jacked and pass on (laughs) to the great Satan, the Americans. Yeah. As it turns out, I I think the real lesson here is it turns out this guy was just a dude. Uh, who got lucky, uh, was ruthless and and organized and intelligent, sure. But he got lucky. And as it turns out, he was just a guy who put his undies on one leg at a time, just like the rest of us. When he could find them. When he could find them. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, yes, he was undone by a pair of underwear. Furthermore, um, and this is the really egregious thing that we already talked about, is you you are not to commit suicide. The fact mm-hmm. that you blew your own head off. These are okay. Whatever talent he may have had as a leader, as as a as a uh, figurehead, these things are significantly diminished not only by dying but by committing suicide and having that suicide brought about because of misplaced slash stolen underwear. It's not a good look. <laughs> it's not a good look if you're trying to be the caliph. And if you're one of these folks, look, there's a lot of research that's been done. Uh, interrogation of former terrorists, other and people and current terrorists. And the thing that you come to find out is, okay, there's a good amount of competency and strategic planning with, uh, with some of the people at the tops of these organizations. But a lot of the foot soldiers are kind of suggestible dummies. And now if you're a suggestible dummy who's been brought into the ISIS fold and say you're in like I don't know, ISIS in Afghanistan, and you find out that the dude that you have been following was undone by underwear and he committed suicide. I'm sorry. Do you really still want to be part of this club? Yeah, probably not. But the fact of the matter is, uh, and we've been playing whack-a-mole with these organizations since 2001. Um, Yeah, I agree with you. I think ISIS, you know, to a certain extent is probably a spent force, at least uh, in this area of the world, you're right to bring up um, the franchises in places like Nigeria, Afghanistan, the Philippines, and so on. Um, they're all over the place. Um, you know, they're local groups, more or less. I don't think many of them have the capacity to strike Europe or the United States um, or anything like that. Um, but the, the fact of the matter is, like, this ideology isn't going away. Uh, and something else is going to spin out from under ISIS. It's the next generation of leadership is going to be rising up. Um, they'll probably call themselves something else, right? And come up with some other angle other than the caliphate um, to be new and exciting for Muslims, young Muslims to be attracted to and to want to join, right? Because this is all about joining. It's about being the hot new club for basically the, uh, I guess, global... A uh, young Muslim man equivalent of of uh, the hot frat to join on College Row. Right. It should also be said that the modern version of uh, this this vision of uh, of Islam has its roots in the United States and a rejection of 
uh, American commercialism and its and its lack of spirituality. And it goes back to the 1940s. There's a longer and much more interesting story there that we can go into in another episode about a gentleman named Saeed Khatoub, who is the intellectual forerunner of all of these extreme Islamic extreme movements, uh, including the the regime in Iran. But uh, the long the long and the short of this is this intellectual thread has has been going and growing since the 1940s. And so, Steve, what you're saying about we're playing whack-a-mole, there's decent reason to believe that given the disruptions in the Middle East over the last, the political disruptions in the Middle East over the last several decades, that there will be, at, and the consistency of Islam, that there will be another version of an Al-Qaeda or an Islamic State or something else to come along. And yeah. the question is, when they come along, what are they going to do to differentiate themselves? Exactly. So uh, obviously, Al-Qaeda had September 11th. That was a spectacular success. Uh, turned out to be kind of a one-off. They had a couple more big attacks uh, in Europe and places like that. Um, now they're kind of a spent force, uh, by all accounts. ISIS comes on the scene, has a spectacular success, creates a caliphate, takes over a state the size of Great Britain. Uh, in the middle of the Middle East, rules over 12 to 13 million people. This guy gets basically dimed by his career and undone by his underwear, spent force. ISIS as such, probably not that interesting. Uh, there will be something else, and they are going to surprise us in some other extremely unpleasant way. Uh, and then we're going to figure them out too. And we're just going to keep doing this over and over again, right? We're very good once uh, we know what to look for at closing down all areas of opportunity and growth for these organizations. So what usually happens is they have like some big flash in the pan and then we just choke them out, right? And we just do this over and over again and we get better and better at basically decapitating their leadership, literally in this case. Um, and uh, the bet is that we can outlast them. We can keep playing this game as long as it's going to take. Right. But okay, look, uh, yes, there's going to be, there is a population to draw from, whether it's disillusioned, disenchanted men locally in the Middle East or in Europe or the United States. However, the more shine that comes off of the Al Qaeda's of the world, off of the ISIS of the world, this has to diminish part of the appeal. So to, put not too fine a point on it, September 11th is just over 18 years ago. So uh, if you are now, say, aged 17 to 30, uh, in that uh, 17 year old to 17 to 30 year old male who is a prime uh, recruitment target, you don't remember September 11th. And if you see right. a video of the attacks on the on the towers in the Pentagon, it's nothing compared to the movies you've probably seen. Right. So yeah. how, what's the appeal? Like, wh how are you going to keep selling? I don't know. Uh, like, I, I just think that you're right. Like, whatever comes next, next tax has to represent some kind of escalation, right? Uh, in order just to successfully recruit new people to the cause, right? It's all about the new hotness. Um, we're talking about the same generation that plays uh, Fortnite you know, and you now have to compete with Fortnite, literally, <laughs> like I'm not joking, <laughs> especially in the West. 
It's like, that's, that's what kids are doing. Um, so are we going to see basically an Islamist version of Fortnite in cyberspace? Uh, and, and maybe the next, uh, terrorist organization will be, uh, entirely based in cyberspace. I don't know. Uh, it seems possible uh, because after all, lots of damage can be done there now. Um, you know, that's just one possibility. Yeah, it's, uh, it's no, I, I, I think that it's one, it's a, it's an interesting way to think about it. Part of the thing is that, and I'm not trying to, I, I, part of it is like with Al Qaeda, with ISIS is a, a sense of purpose and a sense of community. And I don't know how that continues, you know? Yeah. Especially, especially without success right. <laughs> and especially under military pressure, constant military pressure, Guys constantly looking for you, trying to kill you, uh, drones overhead, dogs, you know, searching for your scent just makes things a lot more difficult. The thing looking forward is just going to be the following. Uh, I think in the in the immediate future, we're going to have to watch and see how ISIS in any one of its various uh, franchises, how they react to this. Yeah. Any of the franchises, uh, whether ISIS Prime elects a new leader, uh, apparently, um, uh, Trump has already said that we've already killed the guy who is in line to be number two. I'm sure that there are plenty of people lining up behind him. It remains to be seen whether or not they're going to be any good, right? You kind of shuffle the deck and then you draw another card and maybe it's an ace or maybe it's like a three of clubs, you know, <laughs> it's like, it's like any other organization. You have good CEOs and bad CEOs. Al-Baghdadi for, you know, what he was trying to do was a pretty good CEO. Uh, maybe the next guy, will be a total schlub. Who knows? Um, so that's that's kind of one part of this. Um, and yeah, then you have sort of the international aspect of ISIS. Um, and uh, a final kind of interesting point is that in order to declare yourself caliph, according to ISIS's own ideology, uh, you need to be, number one, a religious scholar, uh, which al-Baghdadi was. He had a doctorate in Islamic studies. And number two, a member of Muhammad's special tribe, uh, which Baghdadi also claimed to be. Um, and like uh, religious adherence to this ideology, take those two requirements pretty seriously. So it's not clear where they're going to find another guy who checks all of these boxes in a way that actually convinces pious Muslims. Yeah, <laughs> you can't just con con you can't just declare yourself the caliph. Um, I, no. I think it also bears saying because we focus more on the politics and the history of this. This was an awful person. And this is, you know, we're you and I are both nonviolent people for the most part. This was a good thing for humanity. Oh, yeah. No, we should celebrate this man's death. It's, he was no good at all. Uh, shall we leave it there for this week? Yeah, we shall. Um, I don't know if we're going to continue to monitor this one. Yeah, we'll see what happens. Yeah, we will. All right. See you next week. All right. See ya.